please make sure you go over to YouTube, subscribe, or you can always find us on any of the podcast platforms, and that's Fostering Change. Well, you know, it's hard to believe that this year is actually almost over. And um, today's a pretty special day. First of all, I want to say happy birthday to my amazing son, Makai. Makai, I can't believe that you're 17 years old. I can't believe the fact that, you know, as daddy has watched you grow when you were a child who was handed in my arms and said you could never walk or never talk. And I look at you now as being the president of your school. I look at the fact that you have your driver's license. I look at the fact that every Every day you teach me one thing, and that is to look at the world upside down. You know, my next guest, this is probably one of the hardest podcasts that I've done. In five years, I've been so, so fortunate. I have interviewed some um, amazing celebrities. I have interviewed some amazing authors, some amazing humans. But I will tell you, um, this next guest um, was probably the hardest book that I've ever read. And you know that I love to read um, and I love to read memoirs um, and I get through them. Um, but this one was a tough one. So without any further ado, um, Regina, welcome to Fostering Change. Thank you so much for having me here. I appreciate it. So, Regina, this book, number one, first of all, it's the number one best time seller. You got the number one international bestseller. Um, as someone who has written a memoir with Simon and Schuster, um, getting a book published, first of all, is hard, as you, as, you, yes. as you know that, and getting your book published. But I will have to tell you, um, I had a ghostwriter who wrote my book. I'm very upfront about that. Um, going through the hours and hours of pain of reliving my my life as a child and you know as as, as an adult. Um, as I read your book, I just kept. I first of all, I kept flashing back to me as a kid. Um, I didn't realize that you and I, um, same situation, same type of you know, not only the abuse but the foster, and we're about the same age. Um, and so it all happened back in the, you know, 70s and the 80s. Um, I, my first question is, you know, your success, you're a successful person. I mean, you have, you oversaw one of the largest storms that hit the coast of New Jersey um, and New York. I want to know um, what made you decide to tell your story? Um, what What made me decide to tell my story is that Several years ago, I think it was maybe around 2006, 2007, a friend of mine asked me to be a keynote speaker at a, uh, before a very high heeled, like, um, you know, group of people in Manhattan. And um, it was a large event of several hundred people. And I said no, because I, I was not interested at all in sharing um, my story. And it was on behalf of the Bellevue Hospital because they've got children's hospital there and they provide a lot of services for youth in foster care so I wasn't comfortable doing it and then um, so they took me on a tour and showed me everything that they do for youth in foster care and how they make sure they get an education while they're in the different type of services that they work with them on especially for those who are abused and um, so I went out to lunch with my sister Camille who is you know she and me were like twins and um, you know we were eating pizza at a place right near her home. And I told her, you know, what it was I was asked to do. And, and she said, what do you think? I said, well, I, I think after seeing the services that they provide, if we can somehow have the ability by way of our story to, to help another child get them more resources and make more awareness about what services that they provide, it'll be worth it. 
So that's what we agreed. The goal was to, you know, hopefully help another child or bring some awareness to it. And um, so when I spoke at this event back in 2007, all it, it, there's several hundred people there and it's very hard to shush a crowd. I didn't even have to shush a crowd. Once I started telling my story, it was silent. Everyone was listening. And um, at the very end of the event is when they had the auction and this, this organization, uh, the Children of Bellevue, said that they raised the most amount of money that they ever did. Because what I did is I shared my story and I shared it in a way that how, you know, this is what happened to us, but how different it would have been if we had the resources that were available to us at Bell Bellevue. And so it really gave people perspective that they're just not there for, you know, a high enough profit. Like this money really does change lives and, and can actually keep families together as well, because they had services, mental health services for the parents. So after we saw that, so my sister Camille was there and uh, other family members. And after we saw that, I really started thinking about writing it and um, my story. But um, what I actually did is, you know, I'm an, I'm an attorney and no one understands what we read at all. <laughs> no, I mean, what we write. So it's a whole different language. So I literally started taking classes in, um, at, 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 you know, around New York City called Gotham, Gotham Writers at that time. It was, and they, they had all these writing you know, classes across New York City. And it was right, it was on Bowery and Hudson and, and right above uh, a Whole Foods. Oh, in a YMCA. I mean, it, this is not high-end writing classes, but it was a class on how to write a memoir, how to write a memoir too, and then advanced memoir writing. So I took the three of them and then started working, you know, on the first four chapters of my book. And so that's what kind of got me started, but it was the first time, but, but speaking to such a large group of people and having the impact that our story had, I really realized at that point, we could help so many more youth in foster care or, or make awareness about the needs of like a child in need just by sharing our story. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I say that all the time, you know, tell your story, you know, very much like you. I mean, I was a banker for 28 years, um, set in boardrooms, never told my story, um, never wanted people to hear my story. I was I was more concerned with the fact that if you knew my story, would you truly treat me the same way? And that was, yeah. such, you know, a fear of mine, because just like you, I mean, you're a successful attorney. I became a successful businessman. People just that's that's happen to kids who come out of the system you know i mean that's just not the way we see we only see 54 percent of kids in foster care are actually graduating high school um and I happened to be one of those kids who, you know, when I aged out of foster care, I became homeless and, you know, lived on the streets and was like, okay, That's the right. decision to break the crime or the decision to join the military. I chose the decision to join the military. The thing that I have to tell you is that really just, just really brought so much to me is about the love that you have for your siblings, you know, um, that that bond closeness that you felt with your siblings, you know, I'm the youngest of 10 kids. And, um, you know, just as you your siblings, you all had different dads, you know, there were tons yeah. of dads and in, in the pictures in my family as well. Um, but, you know, I didn't have that being able to grow up and keep them together. Do you think that we're doing such a disservice within our country by continuing to split siblings up when they enter our foster care system? Yes, I, I, I do. Um, the, the, I mean, when, when a child is ripped from their homes, there, there's not much that they could take with them. And, um, and what they really need is they need consistency 
and they need history. They have to bring their history with them and their consistency. And, and what that is, is it's going to be their siblings because you, you can bring them clothes, you, you know, you, you can give them, like set them up in a new home with other items, but you, they need the consistency of family. So, um, I mean, and it's interesting because I understand like the work that you do with, um, you know, with, with filling the cases. And one of the things that I would do, you know, when we, we would be separated all the time, but I would always grab three things in my garbage, like it was a garbage bag, but I had three things. Minimally, I would have my fifth grade autograph book where my fifth grade teacher like wrote loving things about me that I'd always like go back and read to. I had two baby Jesuses, which I didn't find out until I was 30 where I got them from, but I brought them. But I also brought with me my garbage bag, a picture of my five siblings, like all of us together. So what was most important to me that I knew that the person who gave me the, um, the baby Jesuses loved me. Um, I loved my siblings and, and they were my entire world. And then the fifth grade autograph, autograph book was just what was help me, helping me build up my self-esteem. And, and I did that because I knew I wasn't going to have anything. I wasn't going to have my siblings with me from time to time. And I needed some level of consistency. But there's no reason right now, because of all the awareness that has been brought with um, about the challenges that youth have going into the foster care system and all the trauma they have for every single time that they're removed and placed in somewhere else, that we can't figure out how best to keep the siblings together. And if you can't, let's say that there's 10 like you, there, there are still going to be many foster homes in a community where at least they're going to the same school together and living within a community. And I will tell you, I've worked with the judiciary in um, the, the family court judiciary in New Jersey, and um, they have really put together a tremendous effort, the family court judges, to make sure that siblings are not separated and that um, they actually ended up with one circumstance where there was about five or six siblings. They had... Um, families that actually got certified in, in an entire like uh, community and to keep these kids together. So they may not be able to do it individually, but they literally went out and identified other families that were open to do this and would be certified to keep the kids together. And it takes more work. Yeah. And that's the challenge is that it actually takes work to do that. But when you're dealing with social workers who have such a huge docket, you know, and, and kids, they're they're limited in, in what it is that they, they can do, but we have to make much more efforts because the more that we have our traumatized children out there and then aging out, that we're going to continue paying for it unless yeah. we deal with their trauma early on and do do course correct, keep the siblings together, and also focus on the trauma that they've suffered. Yeah, and I think that for so long we we wait to to focus on that trauma when the child is already in their teens, and I think that's a big mistake. You know, I know that states across our country, you know, as I go and speak, you know, that we've changed the aging out age. But the problem is, is that all of a sudden, when Johnny's seventeen years old, you want to come and start talking to him about his trauma and about what he's going to do. He's already pissed off at us. You know, yeah. we've already failed him. I mean, you're looking at the fact that, you know, within the first thousand days, a child is in foster care. They've been in seven homes. I mean, my oldest son, we just adopted. He is 22 years old. He, um, we actually took him when he was 18, never thought he was ever going to be adopted. And, um, you know, a kid, you know, 11 placements. I mean, that's ridiculous. 
That's ridiculous. Do you feel that, you know, and, and something that I've seen throughout the country is that, you know, we've had this big, huge thing about closing group homes that, you know, group homes are just the worst thing in the world. And, and I've seen some really bad ones, but I've seen some really good ones. You know, I look at places like, you know, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, you know, at the Hershey school and, and the homes that they provide, you know, I've been Florida. I've been there too as well. I've spoken there as well. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. th these are amazing places. Do you think that we're doing a disservice once again by closing these where, you know, we could actually take a sibling group and they could live in this home? Um, I think it's a case by case basis. I mean, I'm, I'm an attorney and um, I represent survivors of childhood sexual assault where we, they were able to bring lawsuits later on, you know, because the statute of limitations opened up. And, you know, I, I have learned about group homes where, you know, are, they have been like gang raped and terrible things that 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 have gone on there. And um, but it but that's not all group homes. But but what's happening is because of the, um, you know, the whole thought about how group homes are run that, you know, they need a head in the bed and they're doing it for the money is not prevalent throughout. It has to be done on a case by case basis. It can't we can't just have like one decision to, to, you know, close them down because we do need them as an option because alternatively, where are these kids going to go? Because ultimately what happens is that, you know, my sibling Camille, we were lucky that as teenagers, we were able to be put in with a family, but there was a good chance that we weren't going to because nobody wants teenagers in their homes, especially male teenagers. So where are they going to go? They have to be in a group home. So, so, because other, otherwise you don't have individual families who want a lot of these teams. So they do need a place to go that, that's going to be safe, but it needs to be safe. It needs to be regular, regulated. It needs to be monitored. There, there's no, it's not, it's not one size fits all. Right. I agree. When and it comes I, to foster kids. Yeah. And I agree. And I think, I think the biggest fact is, is that there's no accountability. You know, there is nobody truly watching. You know, I, I, I think about it all the time. I, I, I think about, you know, when, when, when my husband and I started having our kids arrive from the foster care system, they, the social worker, um, you know, saw these two white men, you know, very well off. And, you know, they put placed four kids with us with a matter of three months. And they said, oh, these kids are going to be fine. They didn't do their regular checkups or anything because they were with the, quote, white, you know, upper class. And to me, even though my children were fine, I thought about all the other kids who went through the abuse that I went through. Because again, I was with a family the same way and nobody came and checked. Nobody did their due diligence. Um, and I see that so often. And I think that if we, you know, would do our due diligence more within our system, um, we could actually fix a lot of the problems that we have. You know, I, I have to say this because I get a lot of hate because of this, I'm getting ready to tell you. I don't mm -hmm. think foster care is the answer. I think foster care actually is is more damaging to children. Yeah. And, and in cases like mine, where I came into the system because of severe abuse, as your family, as you know, your same situation, that's what foster care is needed for. But when I'm looking at numbers where 64% of kids who enter our system enter because of the word neglect, and neglect is defined as poverty, you know, Very bad. you know, mom can't pay for electricity, take your child, mom can't put food on the table, take your child, mom can't pay for daycare, why she goes to work, so she leaves her two-year-old with her 10-year-old, take her child. Don't you think that we as a society and as a community, if maybe we went in and maybe fostered the family 
you know. That, that, that's exactly what is, um, by the way, which is done with CASA. I've just joined CASA and CASA is court appointed special advocates. And I've been, you know, I, when I travel nationally um, and, and talk about my story, people ask what they can do. If they're not, you know, ready to open up their heart and home to a youth in foster care, what else can they do? And I say join CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates, because it gives the, the, our, our youth a voice. But with the focus of what CASA does is it focuses on the minimum standard, I mean, the minimum standard of care. And that has to be set because different cultures have different minimum standards of care. You can walk into a house and see a baby in a drawer and the drawer is on, on the ground. That's fine. It's a flat mattress. It is the baby is going to be safe in that drawer. You may not want the baby in the drawer. And and what, what our social workers do is they make their own conclusion based upon their own biases and pull them out. And most of the families that are actually children that are removed because they they don't think that the parents are meeting the, the minimum standard of care are people of color. There is a disproportionate removal of youth of color into the foster care system because of this, this inherent bias that, that is out there. Right. And if there's more, more focus, and this is what CASA does, the focus is to keep the family, try to find as many resources as possible that the parent can get or the parents can get, whether it's training, whether it's, you know, transportation to um, you know, a job or or or, or how do they how does she you know go food shopping you know simple things like that. Let alone you know assistance to pay heat or rent or something else along that line. It and they just may not have the wherewithal. They may not even have the computer to look it up, or they may not even have an address, a proper address that they could prove to get a library card to go to the library to actually look it up on a library computer system. It's, right. it's just simple things like that, that that a lot of these families need. And if we're able to bridge that gap by providing them these resources, you're going to have a lot more kids staying home. And and you think about the amount of money that we're saving as as you know a community to keep the children in the home and get the resources where the parent is, because there's also long term investments. The more you remove them, the more trauma they're going to have, and you have to worry about them. You know, will they be a productive citizen once they get to where they get to? But if you resolve it now by keeping the families together and try to provide them as many resources as possible, the kids could stay in the home, and then they have people not you know monitoring to the family. No, I agree a hundred percent with that. I, I, I think that you know, I mean, just look at our death row inmates. I mean, you know, they've tracked that you know, close to eighty percent of our death row inmates were actually in foster care, touched by foster care. I mean, right there it shows that we are a pipeline to a penitentiary. You know, everybody, I have to tell you, the book is called Etched in Sand. Um, I, I have recommended a lot of books, as you know. Um, if the book goes here. You know it's going to be a book for life. If it goes behind my bookshelf, it'll still be a book that I love. This book is going here because I'm oh, telling you, you, this is, I, 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 there's not even enough words to describe how I felt. You know, first of all, I travel, um, last year, 189 nights in hotels. Um, I read most of my books on the plane. Um, I started reading this book on the plane and I had to stop because I, I couldn't stop crying. And I thought the person next to me thought it was a little bat crazy. Um, but, you know, I, I have to tell you, I can't thank you enough. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. By you sharing your story, I truly do believe you did exactly what you wanted to do. And that is to help another child. Um, 
no more that you you know each and every one of us you know and and how proud i am to to have you on my podcast i mean you truly are what every every child in foster care should look up to the fact that you found your grit that you found the resilience and that you found the opportunity knowing that you deserved more and i think that so many times that's so hard and but but the but they we can't expect them to do it if they don't have people around them building up their confidence and building up their self-esteem. And that's the one I wrote this book for two reasons. One, I wanted to show, you know, every youth in need out there who is questioning why it is that they were dealt the hand that they dealt were dealt here in the US is that yes, you were dealt this hand here, but you're you were dealt the hand this hand in a place where there are enough resources there are available to you. And I showed them what it was. It's public libraries, it's public schools, it's working several jobs at once, it's public uh, subsidized colleges. You don't have to do it perfectly. You don't have to have a great GPA. You just got to keep moving forward. And eventually one day you're going to be able to be independent. And you just, if you feel like giving up sometimes, you just got to get out of bed put one foot in front of another and just get through the day and make small goals. Because when you're, when you, you have no safety net, making a large goal, there's a good chance you're not going to make it do small, you know, small steps as you're trying to like figure out how you're going to get through your life. But the other reason why I wrote the book is that we can't expect our youth in need to be able to harness the resources that are available if they don't believe in themselves. Like we as a society have a responsibility to do what we possibly could when these children are before us to build up their confidence and their self-esteem. And we may never know where they're going to go next week or the next month. And you may never have control over their, their, their future, but you control your interaction with them. So when you see a child in need, and that's what the message is, is that be kind to this kid. You have no idea what is going on in their lives. And if, if, if you have that opportunity to do whatever you can to be kind or build up self-esteem, or we could hope that the next place they go, they find someone else like that. Because this is the only way that they're going to do it when they're transient and they don't have a safety net. And that that is, yet. so yes, I was able to you know, harness these resources and work really hard. And, and it was, was a complete mess. Nothing about it was pretty at all to ultimately get, you know, w- where I got. But along the way, I literally had people telling me I was smart. I was talented. Right. The only way out of poverty was to get an education. And I started believing them, even though there were those that were putting me down and would say, just like, I'm sure you had this. When I was told my social work, I was going to college. Um, she literally said, foster kids don't go to college. They don't graduate college. And she was right, because that back then, in the 1980s, less than 1% of our foster care community graduated college. Now, it's less than 3%. We've only moved that needle a, a little Very bit. little. Very. Very little. Very. And, and and she was dissuading me it, it, you know, from this and basically said, you're going to age out and you have to get a job. And you're not going to graduate college. So she wasn't doing anything to build up my self-esteem, but my teachers were. And my friends were, you know, who knew how hard I studied and everything else. So I got that from others, from not, not from my foster parents, not from my social worker. But that's the point is that if you don't have to be parenting this child to be able to impact their lives. And, and they're going to start adding up all of, all of these touches in their life. And if they've got more, more good touches than the negative, they're going to start believing that. 
Yeah, I agree. By the way, everybody, I mean, she just she just nailed it. I yeah, I've said this so many times. Number one, kids in the system become in the system because of choices other people made. Number two, kids in the system don't belong to you. They don't belong to me. They belong to us. And when you invest in a child's future, you actually invest in your future because they are our leaders of tomorrow. And we we want our leaders to be strong. Regina, I, again, I cannot thank you enough. Everybody, this book will be um, on right here. You're going to be able to click on here, go right on. You're going to be able to order it. It's going to be embedded in our website. Um, share this podcast because I need people to share this book. You know, so Regina, um, you think that they're going to take the book and, and make it into a movie? We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. You never I know. Guess. You never know. I know. You never know. know. Well, I will tell you what, I'll be one of the first ones to buy that ticket. So listen, everybody, you know, the thing is, is that each and every one of us have an opportunity and the opportunity is to do, is to do. We're all doers. And some of you cannot foster, you cannot adopt. But as my friend Regina said, we can all do. Maybe you can be a CASA, go be a mentor. Just maybe just sit and talk to a kid who, because as you say, the more good you put into a child's mind, the, all of the bad can be moved out. And that's what we just, des they deserve. And that's what we need to do. Regina, thank you so much for being on Fostering Change. And um, until next time, happy birthday, Makai. Daddy loves you. <laughs>